Um, yeah, well, my name is Leon. I see a couple new faces, as well as my family, who's never been here. Um, what's up, guys? How you doing? Um, I'm excited to teach. It's been quite a while. Uh, like Dave said, I was a youth pastor uh, back in Hawaii, but uh, since joined the Coast Guard, I've been doing that uh, since last November. So it's been a minute uh, since I've actually taught um, thanks. For, uh, for any uh, length of time. Uh, so I've been uh, pretty nervous um, in terms of mainly how long I'm going to go. So Dave, if I go any longer than I'm supposed to, just go like this and I'll, I'll, I'll tone it down. Um, being in the Coast Guard has been a really good blessing. Uh, it's, it's been busy. It's been really crazy, but it's allowed me some time to spend with my family uh, more than I did before. Um, but this past few weeks, as my wife can attest, I, I haven't really been home. I've basically come home just to sleep. Uh, we're getting ready for a long patrol, and uh, that means we'll be out for months and months at a time. And really what we do while in port is really just to get ready so we can leave again. Every time, it's just a big cycle. We come back in, we get ready, we leave. We come back in, we get ready, we leave. And uh, so this past few weeks, I've been getting home really late, leaving the house before they wake up. Um, so I've really just been coming home to sleep. And this past week, I've been gone since, uh, well, Tuesday night we were supposed to leave. didn't happen. So Wednesday we left, come back in Friday. So my ship uh, was sailing, uh, and we didn't really get back home until Wednesday afternoon. Um, so it's, it's been pretty nuts for me, but uh, I'm really glad that I get to stay up here in front of our church and, and preach the word of God through Philippians. Uh, God kind of flipped it on me. I, I was going to go through Acts. Um, it was going to take a lot more uh, study time and effort on my part that I just didn't have because of the Coast Guard. Um, so uh, I opted for Philippians, uh, and I'm thankful that I did because God's been really using it to work on my heart as I've been studying through it. Um, one of the things we do to get ready for the patrol is to, uh, we, we pull out our lines, we check all the, all the lines, see if there's any spurs, any cuts, things that are going to uh, cause any damage. Uh, we check all of our gear, make sure we have enough uh, life jackets, uh, enough knives, enough ammo, all kinds of things we check. Um, the last thing we check is our gyroscope and our magnetic compass. Um, these two things that we check against each other, then we check against another ship, and we make sure that they're correct because that's really how it, we're going to steer and guide and, and get to where we're supposed to go. Um, and, uh, and we do that uh, with so many different methods, but we just really need to, to make that corrective, otherwise we'll go astray. And today, when we look in Philippians 3, we're going to see Paul uh, bring that same corrective to his heart as an example for us, uh, how the gospel comes in and, and calibrates or recalibrates our heart so that we can be um, steered back onto the course that Jesus Christ has for us. Um, so we're going to do that. It's going to be awesome. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Before we do that, I did want to go to uh, Ecclesiastes real fast. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 10. Um, and it says this, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 10. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Philippians was written almost 2,000 years ago. Um, in a time that's somewhat foreign to us, yet we're going to see in this passage that it's exactly uh, transferable to our culture, to our struggles, and to our heart. Um, it's the same Jesus, it's the same gospel, and it's the same sinners, and we're doing the same thing. Um, and, and in some ways, it makes preaching easy, because if you preach from the Bible, you preach the gospel every time. And when you do that, there's not much uh, deviation. I don't know how some pastors do it where they just preach from their own ideas and they got to be so creative every time. If you preach from the Bible, it's easy. It's the gospel and it's Jesus making much of. So that's what we're about today. Um, 
the thing, the specific thing that Philippians 3 is going to be talking about is um, the, the ancient um, deviation from the gospel of Jesus plus. It's Jesus, he saves us, but we have to do these certain things in order to attain that salvation as well. There's this idea of Jesus plus was, was um, kind of carried over from the Jewish trans, um, transition from Ju- Judaism to Christianity. These guys called Judaizers were these roaming band of, of false teachers. Um, and, and they really, they haven't even gotten to Philippians yet. This is a proactive uh, move on Paul's part. He's, he's going, um, he's teaching the Philippians, watch out for these guys who are going to come and teach this fallacy. Teach this fallacy that in order to become Christian, you need to become a Jew first. In order to become a Jew, you have to follow the dietary laws. You have to be circumcised. You have to do this, this, and this. And they were adding on to the gospel. And, and that's wrong. Jesus plus anything makes Jesus irrelevant. The Bible says that, that if that was so, then Jesus Christ died in vain. Because then it would have been up to us and not him. His death was sufficient. And that's what we're going to see today. Now, if you would, please stand with me. Uh, we're going to read. And uh, I'd like to, to have people stand up for the reading of the word of God. We're going to read Philippians 3, 1 through 11. And it says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. <laughs> if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that uh, we get to stand here before you uh, to to learn, Lord God, at your feet. I pray that you would use me in these moments to, uh, to proclaim your gospel, to bring glory to your name, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and, and teach us, that you would soften our hearts and help us, Lord, to focus in on what you have for us in your word today. Help us, Lord God, to mine it, Lord, for the gems and the treasures that are really there to, to bring joy to our hearts and more glory to your name. Uh, Lord, may you be made much of and, and me made little, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Really quickly, in terms of uh, Paul, uh, I just wanted to, to hit a couple points that will help us kind of understand uh, where he's coming from and what he's doing. Uh, one of the things that I, that I always try to look for when I'm reading Paul in any of his letters is this specific formula that's really wrought throughout the Bible, but he uses it um, very explicitly. And, and it's the formula, of, it's, it's called indicative versus indicative imperative formula. An imperative is something that you have to do. It's imperative that you do this. An indicative is, is a term that describes who you are. And biblically, in terms of the gospel, what we do always flows out of who we are. Now, our tendency as human beings, as sinful people, is to flip that around. What we do determines who we are in the world's mind. But Paul constantly rearranges and recalibrates our heart 
to have the indicative before the imperative, to have who we are inform what we do. And as we go through, uh, as you see in, in Galatians, in Corinthians, in any of his epistles, that's going to be what he does. He'll remind them constantly of what the gospel has done for them, who they are in Jesus Christ, and then he'll have his admonition, do this, this is what you need to do. So, so we, let's have that in our mind, that, that everything that he's going to tell us to do is first based on who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul writes letters, and preachers take paragraphs from letters and we'll expound on them and, and it's a good thing but let's also keep in mind that when you write when you receive a letter in the mail or an email you don't just l read the first sentence and then close it we try to understand the whole thing in context so as we're doing that uh, philippians is a letter to a specific people at a specific time that was written to be read at once in front of a lot of people um, so that that's the medium by which uh, that, that we're reading today uh, philippians in general was was a letter of encouragement uh, philippians were uh, the philippian christians the church there was encountering a lot of persecution. Um, it was a Roman colony. It was a fairly well-off colony. Um, it had uh, a lot of idol worship everywhere, uh, being that it was Greco-Roman. Um, so it was really a letter of encouragement. The tone in Philippians is joy. Galatians is, is, is very um, harsh and, and very um, to the point. Uh, Corinthians is, is very corrective. But in Philippians, it, by and large, it's, it's a very joyful, encouraging letter. Um, Paul himself enjoyed fellowship with the Philippians so much that he would ask money and they would send it. That's why Epaphroditus came in to, to help and se to send support from the Philippian church um, originally. So he, he loved this church and the church loved him back. It was a good church that, was, that needed some encouragement. And this one in particular, like we've already said, deals with uh, Judaizers. Philippians 3, 1 through 11 um, is, is a specific diversion from uh, this encouragement, this joy. Uh, Philippians 1 and 2 is, is really just an expounding of the gospel uh, and how, it just, uh, how Christ was, was a self-sacrificing servant. Um, and now he's going to be um, saying, look, I'm a shepherd. I'm protecting. This is what you need to do. So let's do it. Uh, a couple themes before we jump into it is uh, the ultimate value of Christ over all things. Um, Paul was in prison when he was writing this. When he says in the opening line, rejoice in the Lord, he's not saying it as someone who's who's far off, who's enjoyed the luxuries of God and has no idea what suffering means. He's been beaten close to death every time. He, he's in prison writing this letter telling them rejoice while he's, while he's experiencing persecution. And, and, and he's going to, by his own example, show just how valuable Christ is to himself and what that should look like for people who claim to, to love and be loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And second is this holy uh, dissatisfaction with where he's at. Paul if you look at him from the outside, is ultra-spiritual. He, he heals people. He, he uh, is a martyr. Uh, he's, he's, he desires to suffer so that he might know Christ. Um, he's the ultra-Christian. Uh, when people think about what does a Christian look like, they go to Paul and, and look at his examples. That's what we're doing today. And yet he, we're going to see that even Paul himself was dissatisfied with his current state. He always wanted more of Christ. He always wanted to be more like Christ, no matter uh, how much of the Bible he knew, no matter how many times he, he would suffer for the sake of his name, he wanted more. He wanted more. He was never satisfied with, with how much of Christ he had. And so that's what we're going to do today is look at that example. So let's get into it. Uh, verse 1. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your circumstances and not, not in, in what you're looking around and what's happening to you. He says rejoice in the Lord. Your joy is, is founded in something else other than what's going on. And, and that's huge. Um, 
That's huge not only for their particular situation, that's huge for uh, Paul's situation. He's exampling to them exactly right here. I've been joyful in this whole letter writing to you, and look where I'm at. I'm in this prison. It's dank. It's, it's, it's dark. If you look in Acts, it, it talks about his imprisonment, and, and it's not a happy place. Um, and he's writing and saying, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, this admonition to rejoice in the Lord isn't new. Uh, you guys have probably read it in Psalms over and over. Um, I'll read a couple here out of Psalms in Isaiah and Joel. It says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Joel 2.23, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain and the early and latter rain as before. What he's saying is, you're, you're going to have joy for a reason. In the Old Testament, when that, that admonition went out, rejoice in the Lord, it gave examples of why we should rejoice in the Lord. It wasn't an empty, hey, just have joy, you're going to be okay. How many times have I heard, hey, joy is a choice, and when I'm, when I'm in a rut, hey, joy is a choice, joy is a choice, and they would just throw that out as, as an empty kind of proverb, and they never really had any meat to it. But joy, yes, it is a choice. It's a choice to remember what God has done in the past and what he's going to do. He promises over and over and over joy. He promises that he's going to be there for you. He promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you. He promises healing and wholeness. And really, that, that's, that's the, the foundation for joy is, is Jesus Christ, is in the Lord. Um, so joy is meat. It, it, it's something. There's substance to it. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you. What is the same thing? It's the gospel. To write the same things to you is, is safe for you. It's safe for you. It's no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. He's going to reiterate again, this is what Christ has done. This is, this is why we can have joy. And he's going to say it again. This is the gospel. He, he just sent two chapters doing it. He's been preaching and proclaiming, and now he's going to do it again. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. The idea of safe for you is, is, one, that's, um, is one that's kind of interesting. It, it's safe. It, it's firm. It's certain. You can grab a hold of it. Also, there's this connotation of, of, of a safeguard. As, as of a shepherd saying, I'm saying this to you uh, to safeguard you from things that might come. So he's saying, I'm going to reiterate the gospel so that you can protect yourself from internal and external threats. And we're, we're going to get into that um, and what those specific threats are. But if Paul can remind us of the gospel, then we can also remind ourselves. Uh, preaching the gospel is a safeguard for us. It's a safeguard uh, for our hearts when, when we're having... Um, our, our foundation, our identity, our trust in something else, how do we get out of that? We preach the gospel to ourselves. You don't just tell yourself, hey, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't do that. No, it, it's, it's taking our eyes off whatever we deem as valuable and putting on it, on, on our eyes onto something that's far more valuable. And th that's, that's the gospel, it's this replacing of values, as we'll see here in a minute. Now, he, he's, he's had this joyful tone, now he's going to flip it up. He's going to change to a very harsh, uh, a very uh, staccato kind of rhythm uh, for a purpose. Paul was, was a smart man. He used a lot of uh, literary features in his writing to, to make a point. And, and in verse 2, he's going to say this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out, look out, look out. Beware, beware, watch out. It's, it's this, this harshness uh, to make a point, to shake people out of their complacency. They've been reading this letter. Wow, this is awesome. It's about Jesus. And then, whoa, they're, all of a sudden they're reading this, this harsh tone that's saying, man, I, I, need to, I need to really pay attention. What, what's going on here? 
And really, he's saying beware, and there's these two levels that we're going to see here. One, level one is he's just straight calling these people out. He's straight calling these, these guys the Judaizers. We'll see in a second what the, what the actual problem was. He's calling them out. He's calling them dogs. And dogs was uh, a term of derision um, within that culture. And now we say, hey, what's up, dog? And, and we use it kind of like a, you know, like a, a, a glad tidings kind of thing. Hey, what's, what's going on? It's like, that's your friends. Well, back in the day, you call someone a dog, it, it was, it was a der- term of derision. Now, it was used for male cult prostitutes by, by the Jewish high priest. They would say, those guys are dogs, those, those cult prostitutes, those male prostitutes in front of the temples, waiting and luring men in. Those are dogs. It was used for, um, for Gentiles, uh, those, those people who are the people of God. Yeah, those other people, those guys are dogs. It was used for uh, what people call cynic philosophers, these people who, um, who were beggars, basically. Their whole philosophy was that they wanted to detach themselves from the world, and so instead of do- having nice things, they would get rid of it and just be beggars and just sit there dirty. And instead of being nice and, and, and begging and pleading and asking for help, they would deride people as they would pass by, saying, look at all the stuff you have, look at it. And, and they were really social outcasts. They were dogs. It was a term of derision. Now he's flipping it. Because these people that he's calling Judaizers are socially um, high-ranking. They're people who everyone would look at and be like, man, those guys are good people. And now he's calling them dogs, who they were using that term for other people. And then he'll say evildoers. The irony here is, is that the world, again, would lift these people up as the righteous ones. As the people would look at and be like, I want to be like them. And now he's saying, no, these guys are workers of evil. And mutilators of the flesh, um, they call themselves the circumcision. The people of God had a term for themselves called the circumcision. And, and, that, and these, these Jewish high rulers thought, yeah, this is us. We're, we're the circumcision. We're the people set apart by God as his per, per, uh, specific special people. And these people are other. These are dogs. These are the evildoers. We're the special people of God. And now he, he's taking that term for circumcision and, and he's changing it enough to, to mean mutilation. Mutilation. These mutilators of the flesh. And that, that's the irony is that they're no longer part of the circumcision. But the second level is, comes out of Psalm 22. And uh, I want you to remember the terms dog, evildoers, and, uh, and uh, mutilators of the flesh as I read this to you. This is Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, for my, for my, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 um, was a psalm of, of an innocent man um, being slaughtered, uh, being um, persecuted and hurt. It, it's, it was a prophetic psalm uh, talking about Jesus Christ. And in so doing, in using these terms, he's saying, as, as in Acts 3, Peter and John go and proclaim, he's saying, you crucified this man. You, you guys crucified this man. He's telling people in Philippians, these guys are are, are guilty. These guys are, are, are sinners. These guys are the people who the Old Testament was talking about, these people who are mutilators of the flesh, who are, who are the, the crucifiers of Jesus Christ. He's taking it to, to another level. Um, he's, he's flipping it around because these guys were claiming to be proclaimers of truth, and now he's saying they were the ones who tried to suppress the actual truth of the gospel. And in verse 3, this is in direct contrast to what he just said. And then he says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For we are the circumcision. He takes that term that they previously owned, and now he owns it for them. Problem is, the Jewish, or the Gentile believers in Philippians weren't circumcised. 
They were Gentile believers. They had not been circumcised. They weren't previously connected to the circumcision. But now Paul is using this we, this all-encompassing pronoun to say we, me as, as a Jewish circumcised man, and you as an uncircumcised Gentile are the circumcision. We are the people of God, you and I. There's no difference. And he, he's totally flipping it on them. How can he call them the circumcision, though, when they've never had uh, that, that covenant marker of the circumcision? Well, it, it really harkens back to Deuteronomy 36 and, and a lot of different verses in the Old Testament about circumcision of the heart, about a spiritual, spiritual circumcision, this, this, uh, this setting apart for the heart of, of the heart for God. It says this in Deuteronomy 30, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Deuteronomy 36. So now he's saying there's something new that signifies the people of God. It's no longer simply this outward marks. It's no longer simply this type of baptism or this type of dress or, or these type of, of acts or this type of diet or, or, or this type of, of circumcision. Now it's something different. It's, it's going to look different. Now how does it look? It says we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now all three of these descriptions um, really are, are the antithesis of, of, whatever, of what they were doing. It, it showed a dependence on God rather than a dependence on flesh. Worship by the Spirit of God. They were worshiping not out, of, not out of simply their own volition and their own power. Now it's the Holy Spirit of God welling affection for God in their hearts so that that pours out in worship of God. They're worshiping in and by the Spirit of God as no longer themselves versus worship by human-created means out of their, their own energies and, and their own um, imagination and their, their own um, ideas, their, their own uh, rules that they would set. And they, they would say, look, we're the true worshipers of God because we do these things, but really, in reality, they did it themselves. It wasn't by the Spirit of God. It was by themselves. To glory in Christ Jesus, to exult in Christ Jesus, rather than exulting in their own righteousness, exulting in their own robe and dress and, and their knowledge, now they, they were exalted in Christ Jesus. And then they put no confidence in the flesh. It's the same, it's the same idea. Putting confidence in the flesh means to, to put your whole trust in everything that the world has to offer. But now Paul's saying, no, we who are the circumcision, we don't trust in what the world has to offer anymore. Now we trust in God. So verse 4. Paul's going to reinforce this point of dependence. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. I'm going to take this off. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He just gave his, his social pedigree, basically. He said, I, 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 I was the best of the best. In terms of the world's eyes, if you want to talk about putting your confidence in the flesh, there's nobody above me. I was the top. He's saying that, that I, have, I had all these things. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Meaning he didn't get circumcised later as, as a person who converted to Judaism. He was born a Jew, which in the Jewish culture uh, raised your status above those who had come in afterwards. He, he, was, he was saying, I'm, the, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I've done all these things. I was zealous, more zealous than any of these guys. And he's saying, look at me. If, if anyone could be right with God, if anyone could walk into the temple of God and be righteous and declared holy and good and accepted by God, it would have been me. But, he says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Counted is, is a, a perfect verb. Uh, not perfect, like that's the exact word. Uh, it's, it's a perfect tense. It means that it, it's already been completed. There was a point in his life when he counted all of his little pedigree, all of his successes as, as, as nothing. I, I'm getting rid of that. I don't count that as anything because I finally see the value of Christ. He's talking about his, his salvation, his eyes being awakened to the value of Jesus Christ. He's saying, man, I counted everything as loss that I may gain Christ for the sake of Christ. He's using the, these terms of gain and loss, uh, marketplace terms, financial terms. He's saying the world would have thought that my bank account was full, that I was rich, I was a millionaire. Look at me. I had all these things to say, look, I have this. But really, in reality, my bank account was empty. I was bankrupt. He's saying, no, I counted as loss. Having all those things and none of Christ is loss. He's just explaining what he said uh, earlier in Philippians 2, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, but now, for, this is the first time we'll see this competing values. Uh, we'll see these competing values of Jesus Christ and, and of, of everything else. There's an inverse relationship to that. The higher we value Christ, then, then the less we'll value everything else. But the more we value everything else, the, the less Christ is valued. So if you looked at that graph, that, that line would just go straight down, Christ being up here and everything else, the world being here. As the world increases, Christ decreases. As Christ increases, the world decreases. And that's what he's going to say. That's the value um, system that he now has in his heart as it was calibrated by the gospel. Was it wrong to be circumcised? No, absolutely not. He's not saying that the law was wrong. Was it wrong to be, to be zealous for what he believed in, to be proud of being a Jew, to, to do all those things that he listed? No, it, it wasn't wrong. What was wrong was that he was basing his confidence before God on all those things that he did. What was wrong was, was that in them was the ultimate satisfaction. It wasn't in order to gain more of Christ that he did these things. It was that in them, he, he felt okay. He felt justified. He felt satisfied. And that's what made it wrong. But now his values had swapped. Christ had, had finally become more valuable. Another way to look at it, like, like we said earlier, is, is the gospel kind of just recalibrates that heart, like recalibrate a, a compass on a ship. But previously he was content, and, and now he's not. Remember earlier I said this holy dissatisfaction with uh, his current state, before he was fine doing what he was doing. He thought he was on top. He thought he was good to go. But now that the gospel has come in, it's produced this constant hunger for more of Jesus Christ. Um, and he's going to set that up as an example for Christians um, to have, check our hearts to see if we're really in the faith, as Second Corinthians says. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. He counts them as rubbish. If you're from Hawaii, you hear rubbish all the time. People in the mainland never use the term rubbish. Uh, rubbish is trash. Um, you guys all know what it means. Um, he's saying everything that was valuable, that was gold, that was precious to me, I would just take it and I'd throw it on the dump. I'd take it and just throw it in, in, in the trash because it's, no, it's worth nothing to me. Uh, if, if you think of the things in your house that are valuable to you and the things that you would just readily throw away, um, it, it's easy. There's, there, there's, there's far more value in a wedding ring and your pictures of your family than there is in uh, a piece of paper on the ground or a piece of foil that you just took off a, an old bowl of food. You throw those things readily away, and he's saying, man, that's, these things are nothing. I wouldn't even think twice about just throwing these away. It's this inverse relationship. The higher the status of those things, then the less the status of Christ. But the gospel really is that corrective. It's the corrective that, that Paul brought into his life, that was brought into Paul's life to finally change his values. And he's going he's gonna to expound on that right here in, in verse 8 going into verse 9. 
It says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's describing his, his own gospel story. Let me backtrack for a second. I pointed out in verse 7 that he counted all these things as lost. In verse 8, he says, I count everything as lost. That, that's, uh, that's present tense. That's, uh, that's, that's continually going. He's counting every day, every second. He's counting these things still as lost. It wasn't a one-time event. He said, okay, I finally counted those things as lost. I see Jesus Christ is valuable. I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want. He says, every day, I'm counting everything as lost. All these things that, that the world deems valuable, the world finds justification in, that the world tries to find satisfaction in, that the world wraps their identity around, those things, every day, I'm having to fight and throw those out of the, out of the window. I, I do the same thing. Um, it, it's, it's a constant battle for me to feel justified simply by, by the blood of the Jesus Christ. Meaning this, that, that when I'm at work, uh, I base my sense of value for myself on how well I'm doing at work and other people's view of me. Um, so that if I mess up, it's not simply, oh, I messed up, I'll move on. And that might, how, that might seem like it is because I'll, I'll try to do that. But internally, there's this battle going on that says, man, I, I, I'm a little bit devalued. I'm competing against other people so that I can look more valuable in the eyes of our supervisors, of our chiefs, of our, of our officers. Um, and I'm basing my value on my performance at work rather than the simple fact that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And we, we often will separate the two. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus Christ died for my sins. And that, that, that's a separate issue than, than this, this idea of value. Um, but that's only because we don't see the value of God's proclamation that we're okay. That you are far more valuable than, than, than anything. That, that he, I was valuable enough for the Lord to come and die on a cross. That I was valuable enough for him to initiate a, a, a love and, and, and a sacrifice for me. And that in itself would be amazing. We should feel a, a joy because of that. And yet, as, as days go on and, and, and as I'm on the ship longer and, and I try to, to, uh, to live that way, things start to creep in because I'm human and because I'm sinful. For some of us, it's not going to be performance at work. It's going to be performance at home or how our marriage is doing, or, or um, how our kids are acting, or the way we look when we step out the door. It's going to be so many different things that you and I, um, even specifically as Americans, there's some very specific idols that we as people who have grown up in America will have to deal with. Um, and, and, and it's a constant battle. And that constant corrective of counting all those things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ more. If I can only gain Christ, we'll see at the end that Paul has this angst, this, this almost desperate tone to his voice. I just want Christ somehow, some way. If I can just have more of him, I'll throw everything else away. Are we willing to do that? It's difficult. Verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness that is of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness. Um, how does this idea of righteousness translate itself to value, to, um, to the values that, that Paul has just said, I devalue this and I value Christ more? Um, it's tied to the idea of, of justification. It's this forensic idea of, of, of God proclaiming that you, David, you, Leon, you, 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 you guys are, are righteous. God himself is proclaiming that we are righteous. That, that's justification in a nutshell. 
the, the Lord of the universe, the God who, by his word, he spoke everything into existence. When God speaks, it becomes truth. I, I always use this example. If I had this Bible and God said that Bible is blue, and even though it stayed the same color in our minds, this Bible would be blue because this is the new blue because God said it. It's truth. If God said people can fly, we would be flying right now. People, whatever God says, whatever God proclaims is truth. God is truth. And God proclaiming, you are righteous, you are holy, you are loved, you are part of my family, you are valuable, is truth. And every single day, it's a struggle for us to believe that. To take God at his word and say, man, you are awesome. Even though your kid is out there running around getting crazy, even though you're, you're, you're having difficulty at work, even though your, your marriage is, is, is hard and, and you're going through tough times, you are still valuable. Feel it. Love it. Know it. Let that inform your heart and, and inform your actions every day. Um, when I was uh, still in college, uh, again, it, it would, it's always the same issue with me. It's, it's always a performance issue. And when I was in college, it would be, am, am I writing better papers than people? Am I um, uh, getting better grades than people? Am I, am I doing better than everybody else? Am I more valuable in my teacher's eyes than everybody else? And it's a constant battle. And that's just me personally. That's something that I have to repent of every day. That's why uh, Martin Luther, on, in, in his first 75 Thesis, he says uh, all, of, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. It's just constant repentance, repentance, repentance. Um, and that really is the, the, the way to enter into a relationship with God and into a deeper relationship. We'll see that here in a second. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, this idea of righteousness, this idea of vindication, of justification, um, was wrought. It was, it was everywhere. And it wasn't just this idea that, that I want justification, I want vindication. It's this idea that we as God's people are going to have to wait for God to do it. We can't do it on our own. We can't, we can't affect our own justification. We can't vindicate ourselves. We can't say, look, I'm innocent. God would have to do it. And, and in Psalms 35, 23, through 20, 23 and 24, really is one out of so many verses that, that have this particular term vindication. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. As sinful people, we are unable to, to claim righteousness. We're unable to vindicate ourselves. And, and it's like a hamster in a wheel when we try to do it. I don't know if you've ever had a hamster. I had one. It got away. It probably died. But um, growing up, MC Hamster, which was his name, was awesome, uh, would sit in a wheel and just run and run and run and run and run and run and just constantly trying and trying and trying to get somewhere, and he was going nowhere. And when you and I try to do the same thing, it, it's almost insane. Because we're, we're trying to grasp a hold of um, something that's finally going to give us uh, the, the joy and self-justification that we want. Man, if only I can have uh, this, this college degree, then I'll be good. And we get this college degree, and, and we feel good. Yeah, I got it. I got to graduate. And then reality hits us in the face. It's difficult to find a job. Or we get a job. Yeah, I got this job. It's going to pay good. And then the coworkers are horrible. And again, we're found wanting more. And then, man, if only I could have this, this marriage and this, this romantic relationship, and we find it, and it's good, and then it fails us again. And if only we could have these kids that, that are amazing, and, and we get it, and it's good, and then it fails us again. And it keeps going and going and going and going. We keep trying to find things to, to justify our existence, to give us a sense of value, and constantly they fail because they're not built for that. They're not built for that. Verse 10. 
so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's counting all these things as rubbish so that in order to, and then he's going to explain why he's doing everything, so that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and share in his sufferings. One, so that I may know Christ. He's already a Christian. He already knows Christ. How is he going to know Christ more? He's going to know him intimately. He's going to know him, as he's going to say, through suffering like him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in one of his famous sermons, gave this illustration about honey. He said that uh, you could know that honey is sweet by someone telling you honey is sweet. We know it. Honey is sweet. How many people know honey is sweet? We know it. But there's a difference, different type of knowledge from knowing honey is sweet by someone telling it to you versus actually taking a spoon and sticking it in your mouth. Then you know experientially that honey is sweet. We know it because we've tasted it, because it hit our taste buds, and that flavor just, just made our ears tingle back here, and it's, it's really good. We know it. And, and Paul here is talking about that same type of knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not this idea that we know God. We know that the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and saved sinners, rose again, da 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 And, and we, we'll, we'll say it rote. Like we'll, we'll just say it because we know the knowledge. But he's saying experientially, I want to know him more. Again, it's this angst of, of, I don't have enough of Jesus Christ. I don't have enough. My daughter, she loves honey. My wife makes this thing called muesli, which is like we had it the other week, a really good like apples and nuts and oatmeal and milk. My daughter, if she had her choice, would take the whole thing of honey and just pour it on top and then eat the honey right off the top and never eat anything else. She loves honey. That's all uh, she wants when we're eating muesli. Can I have more honey? Can I have more honey? She loves it. She can't ever get enough of it. And Paul here is the same with Jesus Christ. He said, man, I want more of him. I can't get enough of him. I, I, I take all these things and throw it away if I could just have more of Jesus Christ. More of Jesus Christ. Number two, he says, to know and to live with the power of his resurrection. This is a hard one um, to think about. What does it mean to, to live with the power of his resurrection? Um, I read a lot of different things and a lot of different interpretations. Um, and then I took a step back and I just thought about his resurrection and, and what it meant. And his resurrection did a few things. Number one, it, it finalized justification. It, 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 the pow- one of the powers of resurrection is that we can finally say Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And then he, he vindicated us by rising from the grave. That by rising from his grave, he proved once and for all that his death and sacrifice was enough to satisfy the wrath of God. Because by rising from the day, of, as, as he took the sins on him, God says, enough, come back. And he said, sit with me in the right hand of God. His, his resurrection gives us a, a, an assurance of, of our justification. Number two, um, it gave people boldness. The, the, the New Testament believers who saw Jesus after um, he had resurrected and he went around and he saw people, those people gave their lives for the gospel. It gave them this newfound boldness saying, this is real. This is something that I need to dedicate my life to. This is someone that I'll give my life for. It gave them this boldness. And finally, his resurrection, as he left, allowed the Holy Spirit to come and indwell his people. And it gives us power to do his work, to minister. It gives us power to to even become like him. As I said earlier, by the Spirit of God, we worship him. It gives us uh, a newfound way of worshiping God that is other than ourselves. Worshiping God the way he desires to be worshipped, not the way that we think he desires to be worshipped. And then he says this in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's looking forward to this final salvation, that by any means possible, which is a weird thing to say, that somehow, some way, I will attain this resurrection from the dead, although 
uh, Romans, although all of his epistles are wrought with assurance that he's already attained the, the love and, and joy and acceptance of God. He has this. He said, I already have this. And yet here we, he, we see the apostle saying, by any means possible, if by somehow, some way, I can attain God, attain his final resurrection from the dead, I will give it all up. And, and, and it's this, this same idea that we see in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And the same idea that, the, that Jesus Christ at, at the end of uh, Matthew 7 says, man, you did all these things in my name, and then we'll go up to Jesus, and he'll say, I never knew you. It's, it's this idea that, yes, we can have assurance, but we don't rest on our laurels. We, we continue to strive and to work and to move forward, never taking our salvation for granted. I don't know about you, but, but for me, I, I somewhat grew in the church, in and out for, of different churches, and I would see people who seemed to love the Lord and would praise his name and would expound his Bible and would run Bible studies, and they would fall away, and they would deny Christ, and, and, and they would hate him. And one of those people is, is my own little sister, um, and I'm still praying for her every day, but man, we all took her salvation for granted. We all took it for granted that one day she would be saved, and, and, and we didn't know. Now, let me take a step back and say that I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is, is what, what James addresses in, in his epistle, that people who proclaim and, 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 and claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ necessarily evidence in their lives acts that are desperate for him. They necessarily live the way that, that Paul is describing here, that, man, all these things are, are rubbish to me. And, and that's the struggle that I have every day to live like that, is to go onto my ship and not care if someone else does a better job than me and, and, and not care that, that, that I messed up and, and people are looking down on me. It, it's to take that, the people's opinion of me, and throw it in the trash, that I might just do what Christ has me to do, that, that I might live in that way, that all these things, this money, this comfort, which... Um, for me is, is another huge one, comfort. Um, not even just for me, but, but mostly for my family, for my wife and for my daughter. I want them to be comfortable. And, and, and at the sake of Christ, I sometimes pursue that more than him. And that's something that I need to repent of every day. And, and that's the constant battle this side of heaven. And that's why uh, we need to constantly be preaching the, this gospel to ourselves that our value, our justification, our, our identity isn't wrapped up in all these things, isn't wrapped up in our comfort. We need to look at the saints that have come before us and have given their lives for the sake of Christ. Missionaries that are out there right now, people that I know and love and grew up with that are doing that, giving away everything for the sake of knowing Christ more. And that, that's really what we need to do, is we need to have that attitude in ourselves that we haven't had enough, we haven't arrived. And how do we do that? We use the gospel to recalibrate our hearts. When we're underway and the ship's going, um, even though we've corrected it before we left, uh, the, the gyroscope and the magnetic compass will go awry again. And every so often, we're going to have to come back and recorrect it. Come back and recorrect it over and over and over and over again. It never stops. And the same is with our hearts. On this side of heaven, we will always steer towards um, ourselves and the flesh and what the world desires. And we need to pray towards that. We need to, as, as a church, work together to, to encourage each other towards loving Jesus Christ more. We need to make more of him in our conversations than we make of ourselves. Um, we need to do it because we can't do it alone, number one. The church is built so that people can act in such a way that, that models the Trinity, that we encourage and love and, and are there for each other, that you and I are working as a community, as a family of God, working and striving towards more of Jesus together. 
If it's just you on the side of the road trying to love Jesus, then you're probably going wrong somewhere because you're not following the Bible. And the Bible says the church is God's outpost of the heaven, is God's uh, way of, of bringing the kingdom of God to, to the earth. And, and this is what we're at. So the question really comes down to this. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? A lot of people that I talk to on the ship who don't have any idea who Jesus is or feel like they're satisfied. And then the next day, they'll look depressed and angry and, and they'll all know I'm satisfied the next day after that because they have no idea what the truth is. They, they have no idea what true satisfaction really is. They have no idea that, that, that knowing Christ brings a wholeness that nothing else can bring them. They're dissatisfied. So as an unbeliever, are you satisfied in your righteousness? Are you looking at yourself and saying, man, look at me, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as those guys. That's what most people do, really, is they'll compare themselves not to the holy God, but to the person who's eating someone's face in Florida, right? They'll, they'll compare themselves to someone that, that is the, 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 in the pits of, of, of society. They'll compare themselves to, to Hitler, to, to evil, to, to whatever it is to make themselves feel okay, to make themselves feel righteous enough. But when you take Christ and his holiness, it's really up here, and there's no way you can ever compare yourself to that and be okay. When Isaiah was confronted with a holy God, he said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Immediately, he was faced with his own sinfulness because he compared himself not to other people, but to God. As a Christian, are you satisfied? Or what are you trying to satisfy yourself with? Do you leave your house every day um, and, and worry about what people are thinking about you or people are looking at you? Um, at work, what are the things that you're trying to find satisfaction in? And really, the question is, what are these idols? Because there's this external idea of, yeah, these Judaizers are coming, and they're going to preach this gospel of, of this anti-gospel of Jesus, and you need to do these things. So you're really depending on all these things rather than Jesus. But internally, there's that struggle of, what am I depending upon other than Jesus for my identity, for my value, for my salvation? If it's anything else, the answer is the same. Repent and preach the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could have an intimate relationship with him. As we talked about last week, Hebrews talks about how we enter freely and comfortably into the gates of the temple. We can enter his temple with confidence, not, not with fear. People used to tremble and walking up, not knowing if they had washed enough or, or done enough rituals or sacrificed enough in order not to die when they entered his temple. You and I can walk straight. and We don't have to worry. Look God in the eye and say, God, thank you for loving me. And that's really where we need to find our, our ultimate value. I'll close with this. It's a parable out of Matthew. It's a very short one. But it's about a man who walks through a field and he hits his toe on a treasure and he looks down and what, what is that? So he digs it up and he looks at it and it's the most beautiful treasure that this man had ever seen. As a matter of fact, in that instant that he laid his eyes on that treasure, that became the most valuable thing to him in the entire world. And so what does he do? He hides it, he runs back home, and he sells everything he has, everything. And it says he does it in joy. Now, I have a house in Hawaii. We have a lot of nice things. Um, to sell all those things to me probably wouldn't be the most joyful thing to do because those are things we find comfort in. But this man takes it. And he sells it all. He takes that money and goes to the owner of that land and says, I want to buy your land. And he buys it and finally has his treasure. He gave everything else up in joy as Paul gives up everything else, his whole social status in joy so that he may gain more of Christ. And really that's, that's the proclamation today is where is your treasure? Because there is a kind of treasure that makes all other treasures dung, rubbish, worthy of trash. And that is Jesus Christ. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me please as we close?